the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, Newcastle Port protesters in court. We find out what happened yesterday and uh, coming up, Mustard Dogs will be hitting the ABC TV screens again this weekend, sparking the debate once more on the breed of the best working dogs. Collies, or Kelpies? Well, I think it's great to see the differences that you'll see in the next 12 months. Uh, my personal thoughts are they may not mature as quickly as the Kelpies. Just a little bit I've had to do with the both breeds of dogs. But gee, there's never been a good dog of that colour, and I think they'll be fine. They'll be really good, and I think it's only great that people get to look at both breeds. And, and you know, we you're probably either a Ford person or a Holden person, and that's pretty much the same with the dogs. And again, we'll uh, throw the lines open. You can text us about your dogs. We got a few yesterday. Uh, you can uh, send them in again today. Uh, text us here at the country hour zero four six seven nine double two six eight four to keep the debate rolling on. It's uh, six minutes past twelve on the country hour. Look forward to getting some of those texts about the best dogs you've had over the years. But uh, first up to supermarkets and the New South Wales Farmers Association. They're backing the call for an HPC inquiry into supermarket pricing. It says farmers are reporting significant abuses of power by the major supermarket chains and they say they're being paid below the cost of production for some of the food that they're supplying. President Xavier Martin told David Clawton that another government review to be chaired by the former Labor Minister Dr Craig Emerson will probably do nothing to solve the problems. Well, farmers see that there's clearly a problem with the prices in the supermarkets because they look at their goods there and they realise that the low prices they're getting paid are in no way getting reflected at, in the high prices that the consumers are, that the pain that the consumers are feeling at the checkout. Uh, so they're, they're What are a few examples of that? I mean, we've heard obviously about oh. the low price of, of meat in the sale yards and the high price in the supermarkets, but what are some other examples of that? Oh, certainly around fruit and vegetables. I've had um, members say to me they're seeing their produce on the shelf at triple or five times or even up to ten times the value they're getting paid for that exact item. And the prices that they're getting, some say, is below the cost of production. Oh, absolutely. Massive profits, you know, multi-billion dollar profits these middlemen are getting away with out of the supply chain at a time when the consumers are really hurting uh, is, is also transferring hurt into the paddock and farmers, farmers are really hurting. Now, there are more than two major supermarkets. We've had Aldi in Australia now for 20 years. But are you are you're hearing that competition isn't actually working on the ground sometimes? Well, the two majors, um, you know, many farmers believe it's almost like a cartel and that the others just leverage off those two big middlemen. And, you know, there's other parts of the supply chain too that exhibit this major middlemen behaviour. Uh, so, look, a lot of the processes and, and uh, the systems, uh, there's even questions around some of the logistics contracts that are in place. So, you know, it's only an ACCC inquiry that's going to get to the bottom of all this and answer those questions as to just how efficient, or as we suspect, largely inefficient and monopolised the supply chain is. Your statement was saying that there are penalties. Farmers are being penalised if they do sell somewhere else. Can you explain what's going on there? Oh, look, 
we've had uh, instances where uh, cross fruit, vegetables, meats, dairy, you know, there's been a legacy over the decades of, you know, well, if you don't stick to what we to, to what we say and what the way we want to contract you, uh, you know, there's this, if you like, a, a, a veiled threat that we'll never do business with you again. So, And, and is that uh, happening? Are people being excluded? Oh, well, certainly, I can absolutely assure your listeners that farmers are saying to me they're not prepared to say boo to a goose about some of the... Um, the experience they're having with um, unfair pricing because it's been made quite clear to them that they'll they'll be uh, blackballed. You know, they'll be they'll be no longer able to do any any uh, contracting with that entity. Now, the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is saying that uh, people need transparency on the prices being paid to producers, and he thinks the review will achieve that. It will enable farmers to. F- to see what people up the road are getting and it will put moral pressure on supermarkets. But you, you don't agree? Oh, this is the Emerson inquiry. Yes. what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, whether it's the Emerson inquiry or the Senate inquiry, or, I mean, New South Wales Farmers members are saying to me that that's great, but it'll, they'll just be ripping yarns where, you know, uh, they can't even compel uh, people to turn up, let alone compel facts to be put on the table. So that's why we're calling for an ACCC inquiry. So he says, though, Murray, what on, on this review that Emerson's conducting, that he'll have a look at whether to make some of the requirements of the current voluntary code mandatory. So would that be a good outcome? Oh, look, potentially it would. However, you know, we've got a lot of members who remember uh, Dr. Emerson in his role as a minister and in his responsibilities around competition. And there's a deep suspicion that he's just come back a decade on to mark his own homework. Well, there, there are others out there commenting on this issue. Uh, Martin Kneebone from Fresh Logic, for example, he's an analyst. He says uh, that there are independent grocers out there and the rapid growth of Aldi, you know, 600 stores now, means that it is actually quite a competitive market. Oh, and look, I'm happy for an analyst to uh, have a view. But what I'm not happy about is to hear from my members who are going out backwards with unfair pricing and the consumer can see for themselves themselves they're getting ripped off you know more and more month on month higher and higher prices at the checkout well they're just saying what it's the weather pushing those prices up it's just a shortage of supply oh look they always come up with a reason <laughs> there seems to be no correlation between their rationale when you can have uh, let's pick one lamb prices collapse you know lose two-thirds of their value you'll hardly see a cent move in in the meat prices in the supermarket you know but then when they've think it's going to go up, it's the lift to the top, and very slow with a, uh, any decline, any steps down. Well, we saw a mandatory code uh, off the back of an ACCC inquiry, I think it was, in the dairy industry. I think that's how it played out, didn't it? Has that made a difference in the dairy sector? Oh, look, to the extent that it's uh, perhaps, it shouldn't be called early days, but behaviour... Some about three years, I think, now it's been in place, hasn't it? That's right. And behavioural change, there has been some signs that mandatory is a huge improvement on voluntary. And, you know, it's, it's part of a quarter of a century now, 25 years since some of these voluntary codes were put in. They haven't been working then. They weren't working subsequently and they're still not working now. So that's why we need an ACCC inquiry to actually get the facts on the table. What outcome would you expect could make a difference I think the facts will speak for themselves. I think once the pricing is is uh, compelled to be tabled, 
both at retail and wholesale and all the elements of the supply chain in between, it'll become clear just where the reality for whether it's um, fruit or vegetables or dairy or white meat, whether it's poultry or eggs or, or red meat, it'll become clear just where the gouging is going on. This is why an ACCC inquiry is so important because it would compel records to be produced of the actual contracts, what's been paid, what's been charged, and look at that over a, with a perfect review over at least 12 months, perhaps even years, and say, well, look what's going on here. No wonder the consumer's getting ripped off and farmers are going out backwards. Xavier Martin is the president of New South Wales Farmers Association. He was speaking with David Clawton. The federal government has also released the review of the dispute resolution process uh, provisions in the Code of Conduct. It's agreed to amend the Act to give suppliers the ability to seek information from the supermarkets without making a formal complaint, and it will strengthen the role of in the independent reviewers uh, in overseeing the arbiters appointed by the supermarkets to de- deal with code violations. It's 14 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Glyphosate is the most used herbicide in the world and in Australia right now. It's at the forefront of a landmark trial. The class action case will return for final submissions in coming weeks and uh, it's unclear as, as to yet when a decision will actually be made on the case. Lucy Cooper has been looking at uh, the details and filed this report. On Monday the 4th of September, a landmark trial. The case, a class action involving more than 800 Australians who've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They allege their cancer is linked to their exposure to Roundup, a broad-spectrum glyphosate-based herbicide between July 1976 and July 2022. So what's the aim of the trial? To determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. If that is accepted by the court, the trial will then seek to determine whether the manufacturer, Monsanto, and its Australian division, Huntsman Chemical Company, were negligent for the risks posed by its products. If the applicants are successful, the trial could have significant regulatory implications in Australia. Maurice Blackburn is running the class action. Here's one of their lead lawyers, Andrew Watson, to explain the intention of the trial. Well, in 2015, the International Agency for the Research on Cancer declared that glyphosate, which is the active ingredient of the uh, Roundup product uh, that's sold by Monsanto, was a probable human carcinogen. Uh, Since that time, Monsanto's behaved uh, like uh, many multinationals who hear uh, evidence uh, that they don't uh, like and that impacts on their profit and and it's engaged effectively in a campaign of trying to create confusion about the science and uh, a campaign with regulators and others. Uh, but uh, what that led to is us initiating this proceeding some years ago uh, in order to obtain compensation for those people who had developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, as a result of their exposure to Roundup. Roundup, the glyphosate product in question, continues to be sold in Australia. You could purchase it today at your local hardware store if you wanted to. And Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, insists Roundup is safe. So 
why is glyphosate important? Why is it used and what on? According to the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, glyphosate is a herbicide used to control weeds in agriculture, public and industrial areas and in home gardens. It's been registered for use in Australia for over 40 years and is the most widely used herbicide in the world. It's used on the majority of farms in Australia, from sugarcane to horticulture, grains and oil seeds. Andrew Wiedemann, a Victorian farmer and research and development spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia, says the broad-spectrum weed killer has transformed grain growing in Australia and around the world, providing weed control without the need to cultivate and eliminating the horror dust storms of the early 1980s. When it comes to glyphosate, obviously that's probably the world's choice in terms of weed control. You cast your mind back in 82, but uh, I first came home on the farm uh, in that era and the dust storms that were around then, and you look at the way agriculture is today uh, and the way that's transformed and the way that we're growing the amount of grain that we're growing, it's all on the back, essentially, of the use of glyphosate. Glyphosate is most commonly used in no-till or minimum tillage systems. Tillage controls weed growth by ploughing and cultivating, but because glyphosate is a broad-spectrum weed killer, it means farmers aren't required to till. Crops and pastures are simply planted into soil with the previous crop's residues. No-till farming benefits include less soil erosion, reduce fuel and labour costs and greater conservation of water. So if glyphosate was to be banned in Australia, what would that actually mean? For backyard gardeners, it means no more quick fix for weeds. But what about those with much bigger backyards, farmers? All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously, we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those already banned. For example, paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens? It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about, at least in the short to medium term. That's Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant Harm Van Rees in response to claims from peak agricultural bodies that they are alarmed by attacks on glyphosate because it's an important toolbox for farming. Lead lawyer running the class action at Morris Blackburn, Andrew Watson, said he won't apologise for putting health of humans first. Human health and the opportunity for people to work safely and to not be exposed to a cancer-inducing chemical uh, has to trump the expedience of a multinational's profit and the expedience of... Uh, the convenience that goes with the use of glyphosate. So, so you know, we make no apology for the fact that we are prioritising the health of humans above those expedients. But not all farmers feel this way. Some producers say they're keen to move away from the synthetic pesticides. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer and butcher and the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. 
coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. I do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmers toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate. So we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly, given the biodiversity loss and climate change from the production of, of um, agrochemicals as well. The class action represents over 800 Australians who believe glyphosate causes them or their loved ones non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Many more people across the country believe this as well. Matt Irison, a grazier near Hay in New South Wales, is one such person. So we had two units going, you know, day after day for months, uh, into years, you know, tidying up country. And um, my cousin used to call my brother and I the, the chemical brothers because we were using it so often. So that was a bit of a joke around town. He still uses Roundup when required, always trying to follow instructions. I did have uh, disposable overalls, um, gloves and a respirator at times. But then I, I sort of found that if you had a breeze running away from you, try and spray with and let the, the spray go the other way. And it was just, if you're out there in 40 degree heat, it, it became a bit unbearable wearing a respirator. I know uh, Monsanto says that Roundup is safe, uh, but I've seen a few issues in our in our family, family and, in, and in the district that uh, makes me wonder a little bit. My brother-in-law passed away in 2015 uh, from uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the one the court case uh, they're uh, presiding over at the moment. He sort of yeah, had bone marrow transplants and, and um, with his brother and unfortunately uh, passed away after about 12 years with the disease. Mr Irison has developed an immune disorder and has begun to wonder if there is a link to his ongoing use of Roundup. It's called ITP, first words idiopathic, which means um, they don't know the cause of it. But I will say one thing, when I went to the doctor in Hay, he said, have you been working with organophosphates and organochlorides, which are chemicals, as you know, and uh, it sort of makes me wonder how I developed ITP, I've still got it now. So now we have a strong picture of the role of glyphosate and who uses it and potential impacts if it were to be banned. So let's take our minds back to the nine-week trial, which sought to determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and therefore causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Class action lead lawyer Andrew Watson said he is confident they'll be able to persuade the judge and achieve a positive outcome for all 800 Aussies in the class action. Not everyone that's exposed to other carcinogens gets cancer. Not everyone who smokes a cigarette gets lung cancer. But that does not mean that there's not a proven association between smoking and lung cancer. And in the same way... Uh, the evidence we say will establish that Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate do cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Lucy Cooper with that report and the class action case will return for final submissions in the coming weeks and it's unclear as uh, as to yet as to when that uh, decision will be made by the judge. It's uh, 24 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. Hold on to your hats. Severe weather warnings predict potential flash flooding in areas still recovering from last month's inundation in far north Queensland as a monsoon trough moves over northern Australia. And how a TV drama helped the forgotten victims of one of the UK's worst ever miscarriages of justice. Post office workers wrongly prosecuted as a result of a faulty accounting system incorrectly showing money missing from accounts. That's coming up on The World Today. On the country hour, over a dozen climate protesters involved in the Port of Newcastle blockade last November have had their matters dismissed in court. Nearly 100 protesters faced Newcastle local court yesterday, charged with operating a vessel to interfere with others' use of the water. The Port of Newcastle exports more than 150 million tonnes of coal each year, making it the world's busiest coal port. Police prosecutor Harry Hall had argued the protesters should be convicted as the unauthorised use of the protest was unsafe and took away from police resources in other areas. Magistrate Olschlager said while the fundamental human right to uh, protest was there, people did have to consider the broader impact on the community. Some of those matters were to be heard uh, yesterday were moved to another day and more than a dozen had their charges dropped with no conviction recorded. ABC reporter Kira Proust was in court yesterday morning. Yeah, it was a huge number of people. 99 people were listed in court yesterday, all of them the climate protesters that took part in that 30-hour blockade in November last year. So the, the sheer number of people was insane. I've never been to a court case before where there were so many people they had to deal with and the court itself was struggling to figure out how to get through so many um, in the day. So I, I was there in the morning and, and I saw you know, a lot of the, the matters that had legal representation were dealt with first. Um, there were, you know, people aged as young as 20, students um, aged as young as 20, right up to aged pensioners in their 80s who took part in the protest and who were at court yesterday to have their matters heard. But, yeah, um, the ones that I heard in the morning, um, they all had their matters dismissed. There were no fines or convictions for those ones. Um, essentially, the magistrate, Magistrate Stephen Olishlager, said that, given, you know, their good character references, the work they've done in the community, and he said essentially their genuine concern for climate change and the fact that their protest wasn't, so, like, selfishly motivated, um, despite, you know, the disruption that was caused, he didn't see reason to, to convict them and, and did let those ones off, um, especially the ones in the morning that had legal representation. But yeah, it was, it was quite interesting to hear the different arguments um, and, and see that how many different people <laughs> for different ages um, coming into court for the matter yesterday. And we also heard from, in the lead-up to this, the Minerals Council saying that we shouldn't be allowing these sorts of protests. We've had in the backdrop, the political backdrop is a number of um, politicians have um, uh, been trying to pull back on the ability of people to protest and have climate protests and things like that. But the, but the judge seemed to be saying that he felt that they had a right to protest still. Yeah, he, he said that, you know, in Australia, people have a right to protest and that's a good thing. Um, he said, you know, although that is the case, there is a there is a limit. It doesn't mean that people can just go in and and protest willy-nilly with, without any consequences. But I think despite that, he kind of weighed up um, the ones I saw anyway, their 
character references, all the other work they'd done in the community and how passionate they were about this cause, which of course is climate change, um, and, and essentially came to that decision. But yeah, speaking to some of the protesters outside, you know, they thought that his decision kind of reflected that, you know, peaceful protest in Australia is still respected by the courts. So I thought that was interesting as well. And there's a number of other cases that are still pending, though. So, but uh, just because these previous cases have been dismissed doesn't mean all of them will be dismissed. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, it- who knows how all of them will be dealt with. I mean, from the sounds of things, it sounded like it was pretty much cookie cutter for for the people yesterday because obviously they're all engaged in the same kind of action. But yeah, several were adjourned and had the, the matters kind of stood over to other days. One, because of the sheer number of people that were being dealt with yesterday. Lots of them, like more than 80 of them, didn't have legal representation. And I think a few of them were wanting to yeah, determine what they would do. Because obviously the ones that were dealt with yesterday with um, having their cases dismissed, they had pled guilty to, to the charge, which was um, the charge was, you know, using a vessel to, to interfere with others' use of the waterway. So, um, yeah, it's still to be seen how some of them will, will turn out. Uh, two of the protesters that were dealt with straight after the demonstration last year did receive uh, $600 fines. Um, but, yeah, as of what I saw in court yesterday, that wasn't the case. Kira, thanks for your time on the program today. Thanks so much, Michael. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, this is the stuff of nightmares, a deadly snake crawling into your house, into your bed and biting you in your sleep. It was a reality for a young woman on a rural property who was bitten on the hand in her sleep overnight. Her family has uh, been praised for its quick action in applying first aid and a rescue helicopter transported the woman to Toowoomba Hospital where she remains in a serious but stable condition. Life Flight's Chief Medical Officer Dr Alan McKillop explained the situation to David Chen. The story was she uh, had been asleep in bed uh, and had been bitten by a snake uh, while she was lying in bed, uh, being bitten on the hand. Uh, she'd uh, provided, they had, the family had provided a very good first aid with a, uh, a snake bandage uh, and they had contacted the Queensland Ambulance Service, which had responded um, from the nearest town, was still some distance away. We were activated and we uh, arrived on scene. Um, She had been very well managed uh, by uh, the family with their first aid and also by, obviously, by the QAS. At that stage, she wasn't experiencing any symptoms of envenomation, but she had been bitten. Uh, and the snake had been identified as a eastern brown snake, uh, which had entered the house, entered the bedroom, and had bitten her on the hand while she was asleep. There you go. You can see a photo of that snake, believed to be an eastern brown, peeking out of the doona on uh, the web the uh, web story abc.net.au slash news. So what do you reckon about that one, Adam? Well, I was actually lying <laughs> when I saw yeah. that story this morning. Um, <laughs> Got out pretty quickly, actually, just had a little check <laughs> just, around. Just in you case? Know. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just thought just, with the weather the way it is, Just who a knows? quiet look around, yeah. you never know. Yeah. Well, we- <laughs> <laughs> well, I killed a cockroach the other night, oh, so, you, you know, oh, anything well. could be up and there. And they can be pretty big as yeah, well. well. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this one was learning to talk. Uh, <laughs>
<laughs> Snake in bed. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No. Nah. Not for me, thanks. No, no. What else is in the news? Uh, look, a couple of things. Uh, the United States uh, and its allies, including Australia, have carried out military strikes on the Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. The US President Joe Biden says he directed the US military forces to carry out the strikes. Uh, a number of targets were struck in retaliation for the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. Um uh, and the Biden administration has been seeking to avoid the conflict in the Middle East from expanding. But I think with this happening, <laughs> it probably just did a little bit. Mm, yeah. It is expanding. Yeah. Uh, back home, there's been a tragedy up in the Hunter region. A boy has died after being found in a backyard pool. Police were called to the home at Taralba yesterday afternoon to help locate a six-year-old who was reported missing. Uh, he was found in the pool of a nearby property and he was unable to be revived. The state's chief health officer says not enough people are being up to, uh, getting, staying up to date with their COVID vaccines as the new variant continues to spread. Uh, the state's latest report shows transmission is higher than last year's winter peak, while Sydney is approaching levels not seen since the Omicron outbreak in December 2022. And this, of course, is the J1 variant. And it says, uh, the, uh, Dr. Chan says, this one seems to be evading the immune system um, better than previous uh, variants. Yeah. So while maybe not as severe, uh, your chances of getting it are um, just as easy mm. as they were in the past. Yeah. Uh, coastal areas in New South Wales, <laughs> speaking of... Uh, Little critters. Uh, we're in, a, in the middle of a mosquito boom due to the hot and humid weather, uh, and the rain has encouraged a growth in mosquito populations with waterways filling up. So it's just, yeah, going to be great <laughs> out there. Come about, say, six o'clock in the evening. You're just Watch sitting out. down for a little quiet yeah, drink. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. But mosquitoes, in fact, mosquito, they kill a lot more people around the world than snakes. So they yeah, are because malaria. of the diseases that they carry. Yeah, ten yeah. millions of people as a result of being bitten by mosquitoes. There yeah. you go. Mm. Uh, and so uh, speaking of the US president, uh, his son Hunter has pleaded not guilty to federal tax charges. The 53-year-old is accused of running a four-year scheme to avoid paying more than $2 million to the IRS. Uh, now, those charges were filed after a plea deal collapse that could have spared him a criminal trial. Um, which uh, could possibly occur during the 2024 uh, presidential campaign. And, of course, there uh, have been suggestions that uh, this is a deliberate distraction, uh, that they've gone, that Joe sent the FBI and his own son <laughs> to distract Who's saying that? the population. <laughs> the usual suspects. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. All right. We'll be watching that with interest as well. Yeah. All right. And you'll be back. You'll be back at one o'clock. I will. Okay. We'll uh, listen to you then. It's twenty-five minutes Go to one. Go for some snakes. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out! Look out! <laughs> it's twenty-five to one on the country. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details and Stephen Stefanak at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. Good snake, well, snake weather, is it? Yeah, great weather. How, how's the audio at the moment? Just uh, it's a little bit, a uh, little bit fuzzy, but it seems to be okay. Um, yeah. So, are we expecting another bout of wet weather coming through? Well, we expect the uh, what we've currently got is some showers and storms uh, that we've seen over previous days. So, expect that pattern to continue for the remainder of this week and into next week uh, for various parts of the state. For today, we'll see showers and storms across the west and also the southeastern inland parts of New South Wales um, for, for um, this afternoon and this evening. And uh, on 
Tomorrow, similarly, we'll see storms again across the west and south of the state, maybe also in the northeast tomorrow as well, some storms there. And um, that will be the continuing pattern over the coming days. But we won't have the big totals that we have seen in previous events? We can expect to see some heavier falls with thunderstorms and isolated falls with thunderstorms potentially exceeding 50 millimetres. And that's because there's quite a lot of moisture, it's quite humid. There's a lot of moisture available for the storms if they if they get really get going. So can't rule out isolated falls in excess of 50 millimetres with storms. And you mentioned um, so northeast, uh, maybe the mid north coast, maybe north coast. Uh, you know, going to get the bulk of this rain. Is that right? Uh, not necessarily. So I think it'll be mostly confined with storms. That storms. So we'll see. They'll be mostly localised and isolated sort of storm activity. So totals will be quite varied wherever we get storms so whether we get storms in the northeast uh, it would depend whether you're under a storm or not uh, how much rainfall you would get uh, over the coming days so i think um, there's a risk today we'll see severe thunderstorm warning out, out in the west and um, i guess what we're watching for is on sunday we're getting a south easterly change and more onshore wind push from sunday into monday and tuesday along the coast so we could see some a few areas about the coast which could see moderate rainfall total accumulations and if we get a thunderstorm embedded within that flow uh, from Sunday into Monday and Tuesday next week we could see isolated heavy, heavier falls again uh, with those thunderstorms potentially in excess of 50 millimetres and again we could potentially these isolated falls affecting the northern coast uh, as you're asking. Now you mentioned the west so um, sort of coming across from the west some some of those pastoral areas may be getting some rain maybe the central west riverina as well or what what's the situation yes, with those right. storms? Yep that's right so potentially getting some rain particularly if the, if the storm goes directly over the top of any location we'll get more rainfall of that but yeah it's quite quite scattered and localised in nature so it's not like a widespread rain band that we're looking at coming across it's really going to depend where the, where the storms move during the uh, day as, uh, as we start to see them on the radar so yeah difficult to forecast by the sound of things um, Stephen thanks for that you're welcome thanks Michael it's 21 minutes to 1 here on the Country Hour well this Sunday night one of ABC TV's most successful shows will return to the screens Mustard Dogs and if the success of the first season is anything to go by millions of people around the country will be joining us in front of the uh, TV I'll be one of them might you be watching it as well well the uh, the big change that stood out this year is uh, talk about the breed this uh, this year five dog trainers have been gifted a border collie pup from Dubbo breeder and trainer Mick Hudson. Last year, the Kelpies came from Joe Spicer down in Victoria. So let's open up that argument again here on the Country Hour like we did yesterday. Kelpies or Collies. The New England's Peter Hogan breeds Kelpies and trials them, but he's also trained hundreds of working dogs of all breeds for other people as well. He spoke to Amelia Bernasconi about the choice of switching from Kelpies to Collies for Muster, season, uh, Muster Dogs Season 2. Well, I think it's only fair. You know, we've got to have a bit of a portrayal from both sides of the fence, and uh, I think it's good. I know that you've got pups coming from a, from a very credible and reputable breeder in, in Mick, and I think it's great to see the differences that you'll see in the next 12 months. Uh, my personal thoughts are they may not 
mature as quickly as the Kelpies. Just a little bit I've had to do with the both breeds of dogs. But, gee, there's never been a good dog of that colour, and I think they'll be fine. They'll be really good, and I think it's only great that people get to look at both breeds. And, and you know, we you're probably either a Ford person or a Holden person, and that's pretty much the same with the dogs. And um, I think it's going to be good. I look forward to watching it. <laughs> well, what do you reckon then? You know, you've always been a, a Kelpie man. Uh, I'm not sure about Mick, but he's certainly a Collie man at the moment. But are you seeing more people crossbreeding or what's the what's the feeling? Should you be a traditional Ford or Holden, Kelpie or Collie? Yeah, I think so. I don't see much much value in crossbreeding because um, you can't breed on with them anyway. Um, so, and look, I know a lot of farm dogs are crossbred dogs and a lot of them are successful as a farm working dog. But um, I think anybody who's genuinely trying to breed is probably trying to keep his lines pretty straight. They're either Kelpies or they're Collies. And uh, that's probably the way to go. You know, I think most farmers don't really care what he is as long as he works. And as long as he gets a tin of biscuits every day and a pat on the head, the dog doesn't care. He's quite happy. He's only got a place to follow that feeds him. So take me through the Kelpies. What do you like about Kelpies that's drawn you to building up your genetics there over so many years? Well, I very first wanted to find, I had farm bred dogs and they did a job for me. And I was looking to buy some better class of dogs. And I actually scoured the land newspaper working dog column. There was an ad in there for collie dogs that had been imported from Scotland for 40 years and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, gee, they read well. I might have one of them. So I rang old mate up and I went, drove to Collector and bought this collie pup, bought it home and I read it for six months and I couldn't get it to be interested in sheep at all. It wouldn't look, it wouldn't start. And anyway, I rang him back up and I said, mate, and I said, I'm having trouble with this pup. And he said, well, bring him back and we'll try another one. So I bought him back and he, he um, gave me another collie pup to try. And now my experience tell me they're just a bit later starting, a lot of them. And the next one wouldn't start either. Tommy was six months old. So... I quit, I quit him too, and then I bought a black and tan Kelpie pup from a recognised fellow, and away it went to work, and I thought, well, these are the ones I, I need, these are the ones I want, and that's, that's the road I went down. Wow, and so in all those years since, yeah, what have you prioritised when you're breeding your pups? Look, I, I need a certain amount of class and the eye in their pups. I'm not trying to breed yard dogs. I'm trying to breed dogs that genuinely can do a bit of both. I know they're not going to be perfect at either, but I like to compete in the R trials. I still like dogs that will back and bark, which our fellas do. I'd probably class them more as an outside dog that will come in. And it means paddock dogs or similar that will come in and do a yard dog drive. So I like dogs that have got class, um, got some nice feel on their stock, and yet still are happy to be in the yards and to, to back quite freely. Mm. And I guess that's what I've been looking for for oh, 30 years, I guess. Um, I haven't got it right yet, but I'm still trying. Um, but, you know, everybody wants something a little bit different, and that's a really good thing, or we'd all have dogs that were the same, and that's not a good thing. You do a lot of trialling, Peter, and I understand your wife, Margot, joins you a lot, but she's gone down the collie path. Are there particular breeds that you can pinpoint that seem to do better at the, the various sheep trials or the, the cattle dog, the yard trials, or is it just a good dog on the day? Well, look, I think probably the collies are more suited to your three sheep trials, your field trials. They get on well with their sheep. They don't frighten sheep. So sheep are happy to be in a close proximity without being upset. Um, 
they're very biddable, they're really trainable, and they're happy to take a lot of screwing down and a lot of direction. And the Kelpie's not quite so much that way. He's a bit more independent. He likes to be left alone and say, no, I've got this beat, get out of the way. That's how they sort of approach the show. And they're probably more suited to yard trials. Um, and they're also quite successful in the cattle trial world, although there probably is more collies cattle dog trolling, if you were looking at numbers. And I know, I shouldn't say this. You're going to get me in trouble here. I'm going to say the dogs that have come to me in the last 10 years to train, a good collie will pick up in a week what it might take me two or three weeks to do with a Kelpie. And I shouldn't say that. But they're only the good ones because good ones are few and far between. Peter Hogan from Peterson's Kelpies at Glencoe. He's been working dogs for more than 30 years and will be one of many sitting down and watching the start of season two of Mustard Dogs on ABC TV this Sunday at 7.30pm or you can catch up with it on iView. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Golden guitar winner Tom Curtin has been forced to relocate his show tonight to Yuki from the Mwollombar Showgrounds because it's been flooded twice. The singer, songwriter, horse and working dog trainer behind the renowned Northern Territory tourist attraction, the Catherine Outback Experience, has 20 performances scheduled across New South Wales for his Why We Live Out Here national tour. He has eight horses, 12 dogs, three goats, two kids, four country musicians on the road with him for this trip and he spoke to Kim Honan about the tour, a drought charity that's close to his heart and finding a new venue in the Tweed Valley. Yeah, we've got a, had a show lined up at the Moolambar Showgrounds because of flooding at the grounds there. We had to relocate, so we spent half a day or so um, ringing around all these venues and Google Maps and everything, but um, thankfully we can um, relocate to Yukai Sporting Grounds there and uh, where they hold a camp draft and yeah, we're just out here at the moment, actually, um, yeah, helping to mow grounds and um, get all ready to set up. So, yeah, thankfully, we fingers crossed, too, that uh, the rain holds just so we can get this show done. Yeah, well, since I last saw you a couple of years ago performing at the Casino Showground, it certainly looks like your um, show on the road has certainly grown. So what can people expect? Yeah, basically, we do like an hour 20 outback show with horses, working dogs. A lot of people give us dogs they don't like or get along with, so we still get them and train the heck out of them, build up their confidence. And then we sell them to farmers all around the country to work sheep or cattle. So we get a lot of kids out of the crowd and adults to come and help us um, train these dogs. And, yeah, we do a lot, a lot of liberty with horses, trying to lie them down and get them to follow us around and ride a horse around trying to play guitar. So it's, uh, And then we jump up and do a concert as well. So, yeah, we've got a few other artists with us this year and um, Chris Matthews, Laura Frank, Melissa Fraser. They all do their own individual singer-songwriting things and then jump us and we, um, yeah, try to get everyone on the dance floor and cut the mean rug. <laughs> and do the animals always do what you want them to? No, no. The animals are far from <laughs> anything correct. I just uh, honestly flying by the seat of my pants every show and my staff also get a great kick out of letting out different dogs or young dogs that they know I've got no idea. So they do set me up, and I just tell the crowd, look, I have been set up here, and this is a young dog, but if I was at home, this is what I'd do to try to combat the situation. And, yeah, we try to um, round up a few dogs, a few goats, and we're trying to now to get the goats under the back of the horse's backs and things like that. So, yeah, it is um, it's a lot of fun. Every show is different, and also we 
you know, go off the crowd input, you know, as well. And they create their own atmosphere. And so I think that's what keeps it very fresh from each location. It's a broken in saddle, smells of Herman Oak. It's a steering wheel wave on a red dirt road. It's the buzz of a sail as the cattle are sold. It's the hum of a header in a field of gold. Any excited to get to Tamworth? You're nominated for a Golden Guitar and Traditional Country Album of the Year. Yeah, I was um, yeah really blown away and humbled to be uh, up there with those guys for an album like that. It's um, it's great to write songs and you know get them recorded. Musicians come in and perform on the album, bring the songs to life. Um, I was actually out training dogs when they announced uh, the winners for that. I didn't think I had a chance, so um, then my phone. Went off the handle a few times, some mates ringing me congratulating. So, yeah, very humbled to, and now excited to get there and uh, catch up with mates, some new friends and um, some old faces, you know, so it should be really cool. And, Tom, a, a charity very close to your heart is Drought Angels. Yeah, we sort of, I think this is our eighth year on the road, touring over the summer, um, about 60 shows roughly, and a lot of places we go, regional areas. I, you know, I've got a soft spot for those guys out there um everyone does it tough but these guys often don't have a night off for months on end and don't even see their neighbors you know everyone's working so hard so we try to go out there and over the years we've run into people and families and kids that have just been affected by the drought and floods and um obviously covid bushfires you know you name it they've um copped it and they've rocked up to our shows and you can see them all coming in their body language is all down and a bit disheveled, you know, and so I sort of really go out of my way to make sure that we can put a smile on their faces uh, and forget about life for a few hours, you know. So Drought Angels really does that. They, they're a community there based in Chinchilla. Yeah, they sort of, you know, collect money off people and then they um, give these hampers to drought-affected, blood-affected, you name it. Can you hear the calling? That's Golden Guitar winner Tom Curtin, who's nominated for a uh, Golden Guitar this year at Tamworth for the Traditional Country Album of the Year. It's uh, coming up to eight minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, let's uh, turn our attention to uh, some New South Wales farmers who are losing their calves to the tick-borne disease Tyleria, and they're calling for new treatments to be approved. Keith Dance runs cattle on a farm near Maruya on the state south coast, and he's lost four calves uh, and he believes he's got about 15% uh, infection rate in his herd which is affecting his production. He told Josh Becker the issue is underreported and the industry needs to investigate treatment options offered in other countries. At this stage Josh has reared his ugly head again since the rains in November. Uh, the tick numbers have exploded. Now my cattle I breed my calves all at Blower, um, which is 
inland from the coast. Uh, the, I've, they've been on the Mullandary Flat since about June, and since the rain event, I've lost four calves, four yearling cattle with tilaria. They've copped the, the, the disease. I've caught about a 15, 10 to 15% infection rate. There's a lot of cars that are really suffering from it. And it's economically a major loss, the fact that they're dying, but the production loss is huge. Those cars take a long time to come back. Have you spoken to other farmers in the region affected by it as well? Yes. It's more, the more I talk about to locals, the more you find it being about there's as far south as Tilbury that I know of and up to Berry. Uh, there's places around Maria and Badala that are having um, calves affected and, and fairly severely. Uh, the problem is there's no registered treatment for this this in uh, Australia. There's a, there's a treatment for it in New Zealand, America and 20 other countries where it's registered. The MLA have done a trial on it, I think, around 2016 or 17, um, and haven't gone through the process to get the, the, this drug registered in Australia. The issue, Josh, I think we need to get is people to contact your district vets to alert them to the, how widespread and what economic damage this is doing so that we can actually push the MLA to go down the pathway of getting this drug, drug registered because at this stage, our vets have no treatment for this animal, this disease. They just say, leave in the paddock. They'll either get better or they'll die. Simple as that. Matt Playford is Director of Dorbett's, a veterinary parasitology lab, and also the technical lead with Parabos. He says bupavacone is not a practical solution for Australian farmers. The type of tileria that we're seeing is tileria orientalis, and it causes uh, anemia. So it destroys red blood cells. And by the time you see sick animals, they've had a lot of their um, blood oxygen carrying capacity taken away. So they're very sick. Look, uh, it affects young calves. It also affects um, heifers and it also affects mature adult cattle. And it's an it's an ongoing problem, and for places that have outbreaks of tilaria, it can be devastating because they can have, you know, several up to dozens of animals die in a short space of time. In terms of specific treatments for it, there's really only one that's been found to be useful, and that's bupavacone. There has been some research done into the effectiveness of bupavacone and also uh, uh, the residue, um, what's the significance of that research? Yeah, so by the time you actually inject animals with bupavacone, it doesn't really have much benefit to the animals because even though it kills the tileria, by that stage, what the animals really need is intensive care. So even in places like New Zealand, where they hurried to register bupavacone or make it available on permit, it wasn't used very much because it really didn't make a material difference to the health of the affected animals. The other thing about bupavacone is that it has a terrible residue profile and um, research that was commissioned by Meat and Livestock Australia to see if it was feasible to, uh, to use bupavacone in Australia showed that it would mean that animals would pretty much have to be taken out of the food chain once they had been injected. 
and that's not acceptable for uh, for any of our cattle producers. Are there other treatments that um, would help producers that are struggling with the issue of tyleria at the moment? Um, yes, there there definitely are. So. Um, Veterinary treatment to provide intensive care to affected animals does save a lot of the affected individuals. Now, this can take um, a lot of different forms. Um, you know, ideally, they'd be getting blood transfusions and they would be getting, um, you know, confinement in a place where they can rest and be given regular um, stomach tubing to uh, to give them fluids and... Um, High concentration energy foods um, will help bring a lot of them around. But the critical thing is because they have such um, uh, a bad hit of anemia by the time you get to see them, a lot of them die when they're being brought up to the yards. And the worst thing you can do is actually try and yard cattle that are affected because they tend to collapse and die because of the, uh, the strenuous exercise involved. And while Matt Playford says there are some treatments available in other countries that may help farmers in New South Wales, they would need approval from the APVMA. Farmers are keen to lobby APVMA. They really should be um, looking for uh, the reintroduction of beta-colporon. Tell us more about that. So beta-colporon is a formulation of fluazuron, which is a synthetic pyrethroid uh, ticocide. And it's proven to be very useful in preventing tick numbers from building up um, such that they transfer tyleria and threaten the lives of animals. So it's widely used in places like Japan and New Zealand where these ticks um, are a problem. Now, it used to be on the market in Australia, but it does have residues problems of its own. And so it was taken off the market about 15 years ago. Matthew Playford is director at Doorbutts, which is a uh, veterinary parasitology lab. And local land services are urging farmers to contact their district vet or private vet if you have a suspected case of tyleria or sudden death in cattle that needs investigating. To markets now and Griffith Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Land numbers lifted to 10,100. The quality was very good with most lambs 27 kilos carcass weight and heavier. There were a few trade and lighter lambs. Competition was strong with a larger than usual buying group. The market sold to Dura Trends gaining $15 to $20 a head. New season trade Dorpers reached $170 a head and averaged $8.50. Sean trades 22 to 24 kilos 135 to 191. Heavier weights 24 to 26, 171 to 228. Heavy lambs 26 to 30 kilos, 200 to 258. The extra heavies 254 to 280. They average between 780 and 845 cents. Hoggett sold to 179 and averaged around 520 cents. Mutton numbers lifted to 7,700. The quality improved with plenty of heavy sheep. Medium weight ewes 72 to 101. The heavy crossbred ewes 100 to 126. Merino sold to 122 and most sold between 350 and 400 cents. And this has been Graham Richard. That's the market information for today and the show for the week. It's coming up to news time.